Radio. This is Catholics Read on cradio.org.au. Hello and welcome to this episode of Catholics Read. I'm Luke. And I'm Chiara. And I'm Victoria. And in this episode, we are reading Joan of Arc by Mark Twain. Um, I think it's quite interesting. Like, I had absolutely no idea that Mark Twain wrote a biography of St. Joan of Arc. But and uh, quite a substantial and thorough it's one, very, It's too. very large. How many pages is that? This is... Looks like about 300 pages. Uh, not including pages. the essay that he wrote about it. In the appendix, it's 440 pages. There's an essay? There's also an extra essay at the back. It basically just rehashes and summarises the story. Uh, I skimmed through it. So it's the short version. Mm. So, yeah, there's like a 10-page essay at the back, which is a short version of the book. There you go. Um, Told from Mark Twain's perspective rather than from the uh, perspective. Now, other unusual thing about this story, it's a first-person Narrative. Ah, and Kiara loves it. Loves it. Yay. Actually, by the way, we should explain this is Kiara's book this week. Yes. Should probably explain that. This is Kiara. This is my book for this. Kiara, take the floor. So, this is my book, and um, I should probably, you should probably open it by reading the dedication to the book because this is absolutely lovely. It's dedicated to my wife, Olivia Langdon Clemens. This book is tendered on our wedding anniversary in grateful recognition on her 25 years of valued service as my literary advisor and editor, 1870 to 1895, which that's, yeah, which is, I think is really cute. Um, Mark Twain spent 12 years researching this, going straight to the, going to the archives in France where all the court documents of Joan's, Joan's rehabilitation um, was, uh, are still kept to this day. Um, they somehow survived the French Revolution when most of the other relics that sh- were kept from her, including her armour and her standard and everything, were destroyed in the French Revolution. Um, and so these one, so this story is told from the perspective of Sir Louis de Conte, who was uh, Joan's childhood friend and also her secretary. Joan was illiterate and so she needed him to write letters for her. And... Um, and so he tells the story right from when he knew her as a child all the way through, and he was with her all the way through until her death. Um, and this is one of the best books I've ever... This is probably one of the top ten books I've ever read in my life. I do highly recommend that anyone who is interested, who likes biographies, should get a hold of this one. Mm. Um, it's fascinating, and it's fascinating for a number of reasons. The first one is is that... Mark Twain really beautifully captures the enchantment of the worldview of medieval people. Mm. So one of the stories, and it comes up again and again in the documentation around Joan of Arc, was this story where she defended the fairies. So Really? I've never heard that. Okay, so to give you some context, there was a tree in their village where they lived, and it was this grand old oak tree. Um, and it was said that it was haunted with fairies. And, you know, they were not, and, you know, fairy, and, you know, classic truth of medieval understanding of fairies, they were neither malicious nor benevolent beings. They were just a fact of the world. Mm. They existed. They were, um, and, you know, sometimes they made mischief, sometimes they did nice things, but they were a part of the world. Um, Christianity coming through sort of, was very uncomfortable with the reality of fairies. And so most, and so there was an agreement made 
uh, via ceremony that the fairies would not uh, bother human humans. They could live their life and you know you know have their home and all that sort of stuff, but they would not bother. They would not make contact or be seen by humans. And um, Joan was sick, um, and this is part of the story is to illustrate her eloquence and her rigor of art. You know her ability to argue and create a logical argument, even though she was illiterate and never got any real education. Um, so Joan was like sick with the fever and in bed, and um, someone stumbled across the fairies having a party at the oak tree. And so because the fairies had made contact with humans, they had to be banished. Mm. And so banished they were. And when Joan found out about it, when she got better, she went straight to the priest and said, if a man walks in on a woman who is in a state of undress, is it the woman's fault Mm. that she is seen naked Mm. and and exposed? Should she be punished for that? And he said, no. And like, so why did you banish the fairies? Mm. And he just went, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, you know, I've, you know, I've sinned, forgive me. And, you know, so they, you know, so, and so there's this beautiful illustration of Joan's, um, you know, um, the kernels of sainthood right there in the beginning, right from her early childhood. And, um, uh, De Conte recalls this story because he was there as witness to it. He lived with the, he was the son, an or, the orphan son of um, some petty nobles who supported the French king and was subsequently killed. Mm. Um, and so during the Hundred Years' War, so this is also taking part in the Hundred Years' War uh, between France and England. And so he, and so that I mean that that's part of the fascination for this story is just that Mark Twain absolutely beautifully and without question states the enchantment of the worldview that medieval people had. Mm. And to someone who has grown up in a world that rails against that sort of enchantment, it's it's it's, it's fascinating. It's wonderful to see. And just the way it's presented is beautiful, is, is, is absolutely amazing. Like Mark, Mark Twain's lit, like writing style is very consistent. And it's from, told from the perspective of De Conte when, he, as an old man, he's writing this down for his grandchildren. Mm. and No, not for his grandchildren, for his grandnieces and nephews because okay. he never married. Um, he never married and was a bachelor his entire life. Um, and so, yeah, he's kind of writing it all down for his uh, nieces and nephews so that they would have a record, um, what they would know to be... So they would know the real story, mm. so to speak. Um, and he... I mean, I, I just... This is one of the, uh, the and the, I, f- I think I found the reason why I actually like this first person narrative because he doesn't impose himself on the story. He's telling this story yep. and writing yep. it down, occasionally gives his thoughts or... It's like The Hobbit. Yeah, it's kind of... Yeah, well, The Hobbit's not first person narrative, really. Isn't it? No, it's not. No. No, okay. it's third person. Third I kind of got the... Oh, I, I just remember The Hobbit being like... No, it is. It is third person. Yeah, yeah. But I sort of just. It's more like. But it's not like, like quasi third. This is like a quasi third person. In some way, in some ways, he's, he's not a detached. Deta- he, story. In some ways, he does show a level of detachment to it. Mm. Um, but he also, like you know, puts himself. You know, where he is actually a part of the story as a witness, or you know, what he was doing at the time, and all that sort of stuff. So there were some things he saw and some things he didn't. But it's remarkably different to say someone like Nick Carraway who the whole story of The Great Gatsby pins on his mm. impressions of this person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, it's totally different. It's a totally different way of doing it. And um, you get a sense of De Conte's personality and the way the st- he saw the story unfold. But it's not 
um, you know, he doesn't take random digressions to talk about politics. He doesn't take <laughs> random digressions to talk about time machine. <laughs> yeah, uh, he doesn't take. Ra- yeah, he doesn't take random. Di- he doesn't take like tangents that make no sense. He just builds this story and the pacing of this story. It just, you know, it starts off and it's this beautiful. You know, you get a real. You get you get lost in the child. You know, this magical childhood that these all these children had because Joan basically spent her life surrounded by her childhood friends. Her standard bearer came from her village who was killed in her last battle. Um, And her, you know, so uh, De Conte was with her in her childhood. Her brothers as well, they were killed in battle as well. Um, All of these people in her childhood Mm. were with her. Um, Do you mind? Yeah. I don't know if, if, I don't know if this would impede too much on what you wanted to say, but do you mind giving... I actually don't know. You don't know the story of Joan of Arc? I don't know the story of Joan of Arc. I mean, I probably watched a film a number of years back, but all that I know about her was that she was accused... That is the the last moments, which she was falsely accused of being a heretic and was executed on that charge, which was then overturned um, quite soon after, I think. Um... And that, that that it was the, there was very much English influence and, and yeah, that kind yeah, of yeah. thing. But I have really I have very little knowledge of her military campaigns. Okay, so I mean, unfortunately, this is not a book of military history. So mm. if you're really if you're a real military history geek and wants to get into tactics and blah 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 blah, this isn't the book for you. Mm. Um, but that's okay because uh, De Conte assumes a, that you know a lot about how medieval warfare was done at that time. This is uh, the early days of artillery, so cannons and stuff were in play. And um, so Joan of Arc was a uh, French peasant girl. She had no education. She was a shepherd, you know, grew up in this little backwater of France, you know, little backwater village of France, um, Doremi. And um, she had a vision um, she was visited by the Archangel Michael, St. Catherine of Alexandria, and St. Margaret of Antioch. Um, repeatedly, she had repeated mystical visions over a, over some time, and um, they basically guided her to, she, you know, she was going to say, she was basically going to end the Hundred Years' Wars and save France from the English, because at this point in the Hundred Years' War, they France had no king, um, and, the, and the heir to the throne was a weak, little um sycophant um who didn't know how to who didn't know how to rule and um yeah and the french were hammered on all sides by the english and by the burgundians who were um frankish but Mm. were very very happy to team up with the english and beat beat the french so um there's a fantastic campaign on age of empires too (laughs) believe it or not it's the second one no no i'm not joking it's the second it's the second campaign that you do after um after the the intro campaign the intro campaign which is william wallace Um, joan of arc is the second one and um joan of arc's role (laughs) who would have thought i didn't think i'd ever in this job talk about age of empires well anyway go on yeah 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 no so um so Joan, at the age of eighteen, essentially heads out on mission against all odds. She says, "I'm here to save. Fr- you know, I've got to go to this place and talk to this person and get them on side, and we're going to save. We're going to save France." Eventually, she gets to the king, and he makes her the general of the entire French army. How? Um, because she basically it takes time, and okay. that's one of the things that you see in this book is that she's frustrated quite frequently. Like everyone had doubts, she had to go through a whole court process at Poitiers. Well, can you and was uh, examined. Can, you, can you imagine if like how old was she? Eighteen. 
An 18 year old girl turns up. You can't read. An 18 year old illiterate girl turns up in Canberra and says to Malcolm Turnbull that. No, it says to Peter Cosgrove, who's a former military man, (laughs) you know, that I want to be the. What's that called? The general, the, the, the general of of the of the Australian Army. Be like, that's like I'm imagining. It's probably a little bit less absurd, but still, no, it was quite still absurd. it was still particular. It was absurd all the entire time. No one, no, no one would believe her until basically, you know. And I mean, she, the thing that comes through in these books is she doesn't care whether they believe her or not. Like, you can tell this is where the sanctity part comes through. And you can see Mark Twain does real justice to the actual nature of her sanctity. Not because she was sinless, not because she was perfect, not because she was, um, you know, it, it. she just had, you, you just meet these people who are so clear-eyed about their purpose mm. and, you know, just go, and, you know, to put it in modern terms, haters going to hate. Yeah. Um, and basically get their get the job done. And they yeah. jump through all the hoops. They do everything right. They do everything by the book. So Joan, very early on, was subjected, uh, thanks to the machinations of an evil archbishop. There are several of them here, mm. um, which is quite true to history. Like, Mark, yeah. despite Mark Twain's bias, this is actually kind of quite true to history. Like, bishops... The nature of bishops back in this time and pe- this time period, there were as much princes of the world as they were men of the church. So, yeah, and um, they um, he subjected her to basically what would what we what what would become the modern Inquisition. Yeah, was essentially the 13th century equivalent of that because the Inquisition didn't really exist at the time. Um, and so she was examined by scholars, by theologians, and found to be true. Yeah. Everything she said was true. She is to be trusted absolutely. God is with her, mm. um, and um, you know, and that trial, that particular trial, become very important later, um, later on when she was captured by the English, um, and so she goes and she gets her army. She takes, she breaks up the siege of Orleans, um, Orleans which yeah. was a major, major victory, and that sort of started turning the tide. For the war, Orléans was a critical city um, in the English campaign. It basically would have given if they if they had taken that city, it would have given them access to the to the Dauphin, to the Dauphin. And so, and Orléans was critical to sort of opening the way up to Paris, okay. to to Rheims, and then to Paris. So they um, so that was her first major victory. And then basically, she just went blazing through the countryside, taking city after city. It was all siege warfare, um, and. So it was all mostly siege warfare. There weren't many open pitch, open battles. Yeah. Um, in this time period, which is fairly typical, um, and you know every you know everywhere she went, she was um, you know basically the English. If the English didn't flee in terror, they um, you know they you know they fought hard and um, you know and lost. Yeah. Um, so she's she was she could have she could have won this war if. She had not been basically um, backstabbed by various French nobles, including people, including people who should have been better that were bishops. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she was eventually captured. Um, she was eventually captured and in, and um, accused of heresy and witchcraft yep. for wearing a man's clothing. This is one of the big linchpins for the um, for the what do you call it the trial. And eventually, how they managed to trap her and get her found guilty. Okay. Um, so she was given permission by the court 
at Potiers to wear whatever attire she needed to wear in order to get her job done. Most of that time that meant donning armour and, you know, hose and tunics that were in men's clothes. And so there was some suspicion, you know, because women wearing men's clothes back then was a big no-no um, and vice versa. So when she, when they got to the trial, they kept bringing up this thing about her dress and she said, I was already given permission by a clergyman, high, by an archbishop who is higher than you, so what do you want? Mm-hmm. And um, they, you know, and then they they beat her and they starved her and they threatened her with uh, sexual violence in prison. Um, it was what she went through was horrendous. Mm-hmm. Like it would have broken any sane human being. And eventually, they got her to the point where she broke and confessed. Um, and then they burned her. So, which is the part where I saw all that, you know, and the pacing of that trial and the build up. You can just see this ero- It's this steady erosion of. Um, Forced. You see all this good stuff happening. It's this great momentum going up right until she's captured. Like, I had to put the book down before she was captured. I knew it was coming. And I'm like, I don't know if I can... This is all so great. I don't know if I can read the mm. unravelling of it all. And, yeah, so I eventually came back to it and sucked it up and read it on. Read, read on. And by the end of it, I was crying. Like, mm. I was bawling. It was just so unjust and so, like... It, it was a travesty, like in all ways, shapes of um, every way, shape, or form. And yeah, it's if you do not cry in this book, you are a cruel, heartless human being, and you need to go get your head checked. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, that's probably a bit strong, but I love this book. This is a fantastic story, and it is told beautifully. Um, everybody needs to read this. If you're yeah. going to read a book, definitely once reading in it. Your, I in definitely, your life, yeah, I definitely read want it. To read it. It's, um, um, it's and no, you know fantastic. Mark Twain's done all the research he's done it all, he's looked at all the court documents because after she died after she was sorry executed and martyred slash martyred um, by burning at the stake the poor thing um, it's one of the most horrible ways to die um, after that there was a new tr- she was effectively retried posthumously mm. um, and the all the charges were thrown out because mm. they were found to have no substance. Um, they were um, they were found to have no substance. Not legal process wasn't followed. She wasn't given an advocate. She was she wasn't allowed to have an advocate. She was had a jury stacked against her. Yeah. Effectively, um, the trial was private. There was you know there was all sorts of um, due processes that were not mm-hmm. followed, and so they were all thrown out. Uh, and so the whole thing was thrown out. And that those court documents were critical for her um, elevation to sainthood. Yeah. For a canonization. Um, and basically everyone who met her, like Louis de, Com- uh, de Comte, a bunch of everyone who knew her testified at that retrial, the rehabilitation, they call it. And they've still got the documentation of it all today, mm. which is fascinating. It's very rare oh. that you have a saint's life so completely documented mm. um, as hers. So Wonderful. Especially for someone who's like 700 years. Yeah, yeah. So... It's, um there are there are saints who we literally know two words of like we know their name and that they were someone like in the tenth century. That you have and yeah, compared they're, they're to written her. down in say the the Roman martyrology and things like yeah, that. That yeah. we know that yeah, but we don't really know much about them. No, and compared to yeah, I mean compared that's, to that's this, amazing. Like yeah, it reminds me a bit of um of um Saint Maximilian Kolbe. I mm. mean much more recent, but um his. His final days, you know, we've got the testimonies of people who were mm. who were working in in, Aus- in Auschwitz, mm. um, who have testified to to his final his final moments. 
you know, and people like that. And you think this is this is amazing. I mean, it's even more amazing that seven hundred years, you know, we still have the the court documents and that. So. That's fantastic, Kara. Yeah, yes, I'm definitely going to pick that up at at some point. Yeah, and, it's it's yeah. it's a beautiful book. It's beautifully written and paced. Like this is Mar- like Mark Twain's written some amazing classic novels, but this is his this is a master this is his masterwork. Mm. Like you can tell he has labored over every word, every sentence construction, the all bit. the pacings. I've read the back bit. No, no, no. no, no, so no, no read no, no, read no, this. Oh, yes. Quote so, from- yes, this quote from Mark Twain himself about this book. I like Joan of Arc best of all my books. It is the best. I know it perfectly well. And besides, it furnished me seven times the pleasure afforded afforded me by any of the others. Twelve years of preparation, two years of writing. The others needed no preparation and got none. <laughs> so this guy could pull classic novels out of his, you know, out of his... Hat. Yeah, out of his hat. Um, out, of his, out of his hat. And yet he slaved for, 12, like, 14 years over this particular book. And, yeah, it shows. You see, it's not overworked. It's not... Yeah, it's... I love it. Everybody needs to read this book. Yeah, I know. I mean, St. Saint, Saint of Arc is a, is a great, great saint of the church. Um, and She's still the patron saint of France. She's yeah. a patron saint of France. Um... And she's uh, also the patron saint of uh, military of uh, military men and uh, domestic violence victims. I think yep. as well as one of her, because she was so terribly abused in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, she's a she's an amazing person. And for someone who says the church is a poo poo on women, they need to read this book because yes, they were, but she still fought back. And, and she's, it was it was and in she spite beat them. it was in spite of. Their their Catholicity. It yeah. was because of their worldliness. Yeah. Um, presu- presumably. Yeah, it was. No, it um, was. And so, yeah. Thank you very much for that, Kiara. Awesome. We'll, um, yeah, we'll definitely check that it. check that out. It's a good. Um, yeah, as I said, the, the excellent excellent points there that you know Mark Twain does manage to capture there. The essence. It's not just kind of, and it's not a kind of revisionist history. No, it's it's not like trying to be like. It's not trying to say, well, what can we learn about this today, and sort of like, sort of like, um, I guess, gear the story towards that. He's just telling the story from the perspective of someone who knew. And he worked really hard to make sure he could understand the man whose mind he was trying to Mm. write from. And you know, you could tell this that Mark Twain had a lot of respect for this guy. Yeah, it's 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 lovely in all ways, shapes, and form, and especially for someone who really wants to understand the medieval world and the way people saw things and understood things like royal power, like kingly power, um, the way that people understood nobility, the way that people understood um, warfare, the purpose, you know, violence and warfare and peace. Beautiful introduction to another world and another way of vi- another way of being that's entirely now foreign mm. to our worldview. Yeah. Entirely yeah. foreign. Like, you know, no question. Fairies exist. That's it. Like, yeah. you know, there's no question. No one questions the exist at any point questions the existence of the fairies. Um and anyone who does is just like, oh for heaven's sake, of course they're real. Stop being ridiculous. Like that yeah. kind of you know, yeah, the, that, that's there's, totally there's something there's to- something somewhat yeah, en- enchanted, as you said, about the um, about that world, and it's not necessarily evil. Yeah, either um, it's not all necessarily bad. Like dra- you know, I mean, C.S. Lewis, I think, hits the nail on the head when he says, you know, fairy tales exist not because dragons are real, but so that 
we know dragons can be killed. Ch- I think that's Chesterton. It's Chesterton. I think it's yeah. Chesterton, which is a great segue into actually I don't know all these episodes are out of order mm. I think the next episode is going to be your poem oh that's exciting you hope you guys like it <laughs> as though it. we're recording it in the future <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah like I said all these episodes are out of order but <laughs> in in 50 years when the original chronology of Cradio <laughs> of Cradio oh, is released um Someone will, someone will Heret- figure out. Um, someone will figure out. Please don't. Like, I'm sure there are much more important things. Um, but when it but is released, Heretics by Chesterton might come to, after. Decides to, like, <laughs> figure out what order we record these in. Yeah. Anyway, um, but I think the next episode will be the... Um, Robert yeah. Browning, My Last Duchess. Yes. Oh. All right. You yeah, okay. you missed that, Kiara. Oh. That's all right. Okay. Or you're... No. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. All right, we'll let's not, see you let's next Let's not do the head spin. All right. Bye. 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 That was an episode of Catholics Free from cradio.org.au.